0: Good morning, church. It's it's wonderful to to be here. I want to greet those that are uh, streaming this online and and dear friends in the traditional service. What a what a great joy it is for Nellie and I to be uh, back with you. Um, in Acts chapter twenty, uh, there's an account we read of the Apostle Paul uh, revisiting a church, some of the church that had meant a great deal to him, and actually the church that he spent. Uh, his longest time at, about five years, and there's this account of them saying goodbye and embracing in tears and a really tender account, and you can tell this church really had Paul's heart, and um, there's little to compare me with Paul except for the fact that I think I understand some of uh, what he might have been feeling, because you, church, have uh, our hearts. We... um, have had uh, rich blessings in this place and continue to. In a room somewhere on this campus, my daughter is teaching uh, students, junior high and high school students this morning. Um, All our kids are involved, two of our kids are involved here with their families in rooms around this campus. Our grandkids are meeting and causing challenges for teachers um, as they are from Nellie's lineage and so, we love this place. We keep an eye on this place, and we are honored to be invited back uh, to be with you uh, today in, and in this time. Um, I'm, I'm really proud. I guess I want to say I'm really proud of you as I've observed from a distance and sp- spent some time talking to some of the staff here and all. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of how you as a church are handling this time. Um, uh, it, unprecedented in, in its effect on our lives, I suppose, in our lifetimes. And to watch how you have remained flexible, uh, to watch the courage that you have exhibited during this time, to watch from a distance and to see you continue to remain strong in the mission of uh, introducing Silicon Valley to Jesus Christ um, has been wonderful to observe and so very uh, in, encouraging. It was a few years ago, if I've not had the chance uh, to meet you, it was a few years ago that we um, felt God's call to step away from our role here at Calvary and to become involved in helping to strengthen churches um, by way of coming alongside pastors and leaders of these churches and to see what we could do to encourage those who were leading uh, during this time, it's been a little bit like being back in my 20s, trying to figure out what I want to do with my life, and uh, uh, the sort of the process that we move through in trying to communicate, some of you we've had these conversations with, what are you doing now, and we'll tell you a little bit about what we're doing, and you'll say, oh, so you're, you're advising um, other churches and other pastors, and if usually what we mean by advice is that we're giving some sort of uh, domain uh, experience um, tips. And there's been some of that. Others have thought, well, you're coaching. You're actually coming alongside leaders, and you're, you're coaching them. And that's usually focused on building skills. And yeah, there's been, there's been some of that. And others have seen the role, as I've talked about it, as more of a mentoring role, where I'm sort of helping leaders, helping pastors make uh, better decisions. And, and certainly, that's, that's pretty close. Um, but the term that I got introduced to and I've sort of fallen in love with that describes w- what I'm trying to do during this season of my life is the term elder, uh, is the verb eldering uh, other leaders. And, and what I mean by that is coming alongside them in such a way that I can help them distinguish what is worth really paying attention to right now and what is, is less important. So if a mentor is sort of a mirror where you kind of reflect back to them what you hear them saying so they can get to know themselves better, then I think an elder is maybe a little bit more like an editor where you come alongside them and you get to know them well enough that you can help them sort of edit out uh, some of the choices and some of the things that they need to to focus on. And and one of the things that's happened alongside this attempt at, at eldering has been a journey that has gone on in my own life to, to look at the things that perhaps God has built into my life, but to do so in a way that helps sort of uncover things that I may not be thinking consciously about, as someone has called sort of those unconscious competencies that we can develop along the way in our life. But in addition to that, I have been, and I'll share with in just a minute sort of how I got there, I have been sort of seeking to harvest... Um, the 40 years of ministry in such a way that it can be helpful to to someone else. The lessons learned, the the, the wisdom perhaps gathered uh, along the way. And so, um, I thought I would share with you today along these lines, not to tell you what I've come up with. I call my list Harvest 65. I'm 65 this year, and so that's sort of my my list as I'm compiling these these different things and. Um, I think I'd rather talk to you about the process that I've gone through, and encourage you to maybe consider doing some of the same in in your own life. And what launched me in this direction was a couple years ago when I came across a couple verses in Psalms that I had read before, but now was reading alongside this new and fresh season of my life. And in Psalm chapter 90, a psalm that's titled A Psalm of Moses, as far as we know, the only psalm that Moses wrote... Um, we have this, this prayer and in verse 10 in the midst of his prayer he, re, he, he, he says this he prays this the length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength yet their span is but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass away and we fly away The entirety of this Psalm, Psalm 90, is is sort of Moses saying, God, have compassion on your people. Come and and visit our melancholy lives. He's he's saying to them, uh, alongside the realities of life, this wandering in the wilderness, and these days of monotony, and the uh, lack of clarity about when this might ever end, he says, come alongside your people. And then he identifies the fact that, hey, we've only got about 70 or 80 years at this. Uh, anthropologists um, observing skeletal remains that have been discovered have estimated that the lifespan uh, of people living in ancient biblical days um, was, a, a, was a bit different than ours at this point in time. They, they uh, argue that uh, 40% of adults, or 40% of people actually reached adulthood, which they identified at that time as 20 to 49 years old. So, I mean, the times were different. They were harsh. They were difficult. And, and it, uh, they all further uncovered that uh, 10% live beyond 50 years old. We can read an Egyptian tradition that the prime of life was around 40 to 60 years old for them. And so what Moses is doing is he's, he's talking about a really good long-lived life, not a life cut short. And then in verse 12, we read these words. "'Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom.'" Now, there are two verbs, I think, that when considered sort of help the meaning pour forth from, from this verse. The first, ver- first verb is the verb number. Some translations add to that aright, teaches to number our days aright. Simply means to live aware that we have a finite number of days, to look back and to look ahead in such a way that it reminds us that we don't get unlimited days, and if we're honest, this season has showed us, among other things, that, that uh, we can sort of wander through our days in unprecedented ways, maybe, doing nothingness for a long period of time, not even knowing what day of the week it, it truly is. Are we on the weekend or during the week? Am I supposed to show up on Zoom or not? And this nothingness, left unchecked, can, can steal uh, The best years of our lives. So when we read the statement, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It's probably best to read this. Teach us to number this day. I've got a limited supply of them. The second verb is the request in Moses' prayer that is in the word gain. That we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, we're tempted to assume that a heart of wisdom comes from sort of stacking up these days, that somehow becoming elderly, which I am, helps me become an elder, which it does not, that somehow there is just this automatic thing that happens alongside it. It's helpful to know that those that have translated this ancient Hebrew into english for us to read in our bibles have done so with some sense of words that fit culture and the word we have is the word gain the word that th- originally was there is the word harvest it's the same word they would use for harvest teach us to number our days that we may harvest a heart of wisdom wisdom Now, it's not as relevant to us in a agrarian society. Society, The only thing I can think of is Saturday mornings when I would hear my dad's slippers coming down the hallway, and then his booming voice would say to me, Bob, the grass isn't going to cut itself. And thus began my Saturdays. Moses is not asking to simply receive some benefit from God as he grows older and deeper in his life. Rather, he is praying to God that he could do the work to harvest wisdom in his life alongside the days. That wisdom is not going to harvest itself. And this wisdom is not any kind of wisdom, it's not the garden variety kind, it's not the kind that turns into pithy little quips that we use later in our years. Or the stories we tell as we cluck our tongues at this younger generation, and we tell them how things really are and should be and used to be. This wisdom isn't that kind. We know that because it's called the heart of wisdom. And we know in Scripture that when the word heart is used, what it's getting to is sort of that center of the human spirit where everything springs from, our emotions and our thoughts and our motivations and our courage and the actions that we take comes from that heart, that place center to our lives. It's what Proverbs calls the wellspring of life, our hearts, that wellspring. If I were to ask you, how do you cultivate wisdom in your lives, I'm pretty sure, pretty quickly, many of you would come up with this, well, I get to know God's word better. And, and, and to that, I'd say, absolutely. That's, that's, that's the reason it was given. Others of you might say, well, it's also to engage God's spirit alongside God's word to develop this wisdom in my life. And you're absolutely correct in that. But what I want to look at this morning and have you consider is the question, what can you be doing to work with God in your life, to harvest wisdom for your life? How can you take an active role in this? How can I be more intentional about developing a heart of wisdom in my life? Here's what I want to give you. Nothing profound, but I think that's what you're used to with me. You harvest wisdom in our lives in no small part by thinking about how we're thinking. By thinking about how you're thinking. God's word has a, a, a much to say about the importance of how we think. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, in his, in his book, You Are Not Your Brain, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz, who's a research uh, psychiatrist at UCLA, author of this book, um, and, and uh, also a Christ by the way, but that's not the perspective that the book necessarily um, is overt with, but he cites in this book a Canadian study in, in, uh, in which they determine that the average person has 6,200 thoughts per day, all right? Um, I don't know. I couldn't even understand a lot of what I read, but I understand they track what they call thought worms, which was not encouraging to think about, that those get worms of thought running through our brain, 6,200 of them on average per day. Um, but how is it we're supposed to take 6,200 thoughts captive along the day, along, uh, along our days, throughout our days. How are we supposed to even notice what they are, much less take them captive? It's also interesting to note that another study would identify that of the 6,200 thoughts we have a day, 85 of them are negative thoughts on average, which means about 5,200 of our thoughts are negative thoughts throughout a day. John Milton, writes famously in Paradise Lost these words, the mind is a place in itself and can make a hell of heaven or a heaven of hell. Um, For more daunting challenges when Scripture tells us that we have been given the mind of Christ, how do we grow into that? How does that even come to fit us? So we think about how we're thinking. And what I mean by that is we become more mindful. We become more present with ourselves, I guess. We become better able to listen to ourselves, better able to listen to our thoughts. Alan Jacobs has written a wonderful little book entitled How to Think. And in it, he defines thinking this way. The power to be finally aware and richly responsible. Finely aware and richly responsible. So how do I engage my thoughts in order to be more aware? Every sport that I um, participated in, in one form or another, coaches would try to teach their young athletes something that would be called situational awareness. They would try to drill things into us so that when these situations occurred, we would not become overwhelmed by them because we had had drilled them in preparation. So I think what I want to do this morning is to give you two ways to develop this mindfulness in your own life, two ways for you to become more situationally aware and to be able to consider your thoughts and to think about how you're thinking. Here's the first one. Learn to recognize distortion. Learn to recognize distortion in your thinking. Neuropsychologists will tell us that uh, managing human consciousness is critical in our flourishing. I think that's just saying the same thing. It's saying learning to take our thoughts captive. It's saying learning to think about how we're thinking at any given time. And the reality is, today we live in a time of great extremes in our thinking. We are susceptible to them more and more. One child psychologist uh, tells the story of two little boys... Um, one night when the moon was full, the older boy um, got a hold of his younger brother and said, let's go outside. And they went out in the front garden, and he ordered his younger brother to walk back and forth. And as his younger brother walked back and forth in the garden, he carefully observed both his brother and, and the moon. And then he went back inside, and he reported his findings to his parents, and he said, I was trying to see if the moon follows him. But it doesn't. It only follows me. All of us, at times, are susceptible to believing false things for very good reasons. Many of the pages of Scripture are dedicated and replete with examples of people who are living and reacting out of distortions, aren't they? It's one way we could sort of map all of scripture is the many different distortions. Let me give you a few examples. Let me call them a type of distortion for you to consider in your own life. The first is this. All or nothing thinking. Black or white thinking. The best example of the first one that came to my mind is the story of Elijah in the Old Testament in 1 Kings where there are 450 of these prophets of Baal that sort of face off with this single prophet, Elijah. And they're going to determine who is God, Baal or Yahweh. And so they develop this challenge, and this challenge is to see which God shows up. And you read the story. It's it's spectacular in in, uh, the detail of it. And Elijah walks away, defeating, and actually watching the demise of all 450 of these prophets. Not long later, we, f- we find him sort of holed up out by himself saying these words, I'm the only one left, God, in this deep depression, anxiety, and fear. And God comes to him in a small whisper voice and says, no, you're not. In fact, there's 7,000 other of you uh, out there right now. So this distortion of all or nothing thinking was something Elijah had to consider, how'd I get there? Let me give you a second. Emotional reasoning. By this I mean because I feel it, it must be true. And we got lots of feels right now. We do. You remember the passage in the Old Testament where the Israelites come to Aaron? Moses Moses has been up on the mountain meeting with God, and he was there gone way too long. And the Israelites uh, came to Aaron, and they said, "Ah, I think God's abandoned us. We want to make a golden calf, something we can see, feel, touch. This sense of emotional reasoning. I feel like God's abandoned me, so he must have. Here's a third distortion. Discounting the positives. Discounting the positives. Letting whatever the challenges are in our life overwhelm the ability, as Rob talked about last week, to be grateful, to see the things that are true and that have not been removed. A great example, again, is the nation Israel, as they had been delivered from Egypt, and from this oppressive rule where they were slaves, where they were beaten, where they were tortured, where they are caused to work long hours, and they're out in the wilderness and they're hungry, and God provides manna for them to eat. And apparently, manna wasn't that interesting and not that uh, much variety to it. For a few weeks later, with plenty of manna in their bellies full, they began to cry again, if only we could go back to Egypt, back where there were onions backward there were leaks and and the sense of need so overwhelmed any of the sense of provision that's a distorted mindset how about the f- a fourth one a, ascribing motive to those around us May not be the one that you would turn to, to as an example of this, but it, it certainly seems to be baked into the story that Jesus tells in the, um, in the New Testament, one of the parables that he tells of the talents. Talent was just simply a weight of measure and became coinage, and today it's actually the word we get our word, talents. People have talents in their lives. And he tells a story of someone coming, a steward, and giving five talents, two talents, and one talent. And they go away, and they do what they do with the talent. The steward comes back, and the man with five comes back and says, here's ten. The man with two comes back, and he says, here's, here's four. Each of them had doubled what had been given to them. And the man with one had gone, and he had buried it, and came back with the one. And when giving his reasons why, this is what he says. I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So this... Uh, Ascription of motive had caused him to miss uh, this intent completely. So this idea of mind reading or ascribing motive. Here's a fifth, catastrophizing. Uh, it, Luke 8, we read of the, sti- the disciples getting into a boat with Jesus this time, and Jesus goes down to the bottom of the boat, and he's sleeping, and a storm sweeps across them. And it becomes apparently pretty intense because they think they're going to, they fear for their lives. And they go down and they wake up Jesus um, so that they can be safe. In the midst of this catastrophe, failing to realize the very one that they're asking to save them is in the boat with them. And it all gets jumbled. Our thinking gets jumbled when the catastrophe is the thing we see the most. Let me give you one more. Comparing. Comparing circumstances or comparing outcomes or comparing resources or comparing gifts someone else may have. In John chapter 21, we read the story of Jesus coming to Peter and offering this wonderful sense of blessing and forgiveness after the resurrection over Peter's life challenging him to come and follow him which Peter agrees to do and to feed his sheep and then and then Jesus tells Peter a little bit about what his life is going to be like going forward and it's those are they're not easy words to hear and in the midst of that we have this little verse that says that Jesus I mean Peter turned to John and he said okay what about him what about John what's going to happen with him Comparing or any of these other and and many more, some of us are so driven by shame and, and guilt that the distortion comes from that kind of thinking. These and other like others like them, what they are is they are deceptive, distorted thoughts. And they need to be called out, they need to be supervised in our lives. It's been said that you can think your way to better feelings, but you can't feel your way to better thinking. So we need to think about how we're thinking. Are you captive to your thoughts or are you taking them captive? Learn to recognize distortion in your thinking. Here's a second learn to realize and make peace with the fact that you you don't think for yourself I'm going to let that just lay there for a minute you and I don't think for ourselves I was reading a story recently in, in in a book of a woman who had been raised in what most of us in this room would call a cult and actually she was raised by the leaders of this cult she was their daughter and uh, As she grew older, the story fills in quite a bit of detail about how she she began to listen to some other voices, how she began to listen uh, to other perspectives, other ways of thinking. And eventually, she arrived at a different conclusion, which caused her to leave the cult. And when those who uh, were observing her process um, sort of did a little commentary on it. Here's what they said about it. She stopped believing what she was told, and she started thinking for herself. But here's the interesting thing. She didn't start thinking for herself. She started thinking with different people. And as a result, came to conclusions for herself. So that when we realize this, we realize that to think Independently of other human beings is really uh, it's not possible. In God's created order of things, thinking is necessarily thoroughly and wonderfully a, a relational activity. It's social. Everything we think is in response to something we have heard someone else say or, read, or write. When we say of someone, they're thinking for themselves, what we usually mean is they're starting to have the same conclusions that I have about things. We were this, last week, we took our five kids, uh, grandkids, down to Disneyland. We let their parents come along as well. And... It was my job to plan it, and I did a, a, a terrible job. I planned the week that Southern California was out of school, and so there were too many people, too many lines. I ate too many churros. But what was true about our time in Disneyland was that I, I, I went from thinking about Disneyland one way to thinking about Disneyland a totally different way as I spent time with those five grandkids, age one to seven, Experiencing Disneyland, many for the first time or in a way they could really um, gather. Their thinking affected my thinking. Hardwired into us, even into how we think, is the important influence of community. Peter uh, calls this out in his epistle where he writes uh, that he was writing desiring to stimulate them. To better thinking and this word stimulate stimulate the the word that's used there the greek word is is a very very relational term so it's that idea of coming and rubbing against you in such a way that we can influence each other that i can stimulate your thinking i don't have to convince you this last season in our life uh, lives as as people on this planet have thrust us into an isolation of sorts Um, We have streamed our relationships, and if we're honest, we haven't stopped thinking, but our thinking has become a bit impoverished. And we all need to think about how we're thinking as a result. And we, we are compelled by Scripture to not forsake gathering together, to not forsake being together. That's not just simply for God's good of bringing glory to Him in corporate worship like we've done today, but... It's, it's, and it's not just for our own hearts. It's, it's also for our minds. It's for our ability to be with others and to allow our thinking to be stimulated and, and to be affected. I need you to help me think better, to help me with my distortions. Someone said to me, a good friend of mine who happens to be uh, in this room today, said, uh, we are as a result of what we've just gone through, we are all psychologically damaged and, uh, in some way. And he is, he's not wrong. The, and the path to harvesting wisdom in our lives is going to be in learning to think about how we're thinking. We have distortions, we have limited relationships affected us in how we think about how we're thinking. Not too long ago, they did a survey of end of life caregivers, um, primarily nurses, and they were asked, What are the kind of conversations you have as you serve in this hospice context with people who are towards the end of their life? And they would say that as they talk with people, if people are able to do so, and as these people reflect back on their life, the questions they ask really uh, sort of gather around three main questions. The first is, Did I live? Did I live? Did I dream big enough? Did I fight valiantly enough in my life? The second question, you would have guessed this one, I bet. Did did I love? Who's going to miss me? Who am I going to miss? And then the third question is, did I matter? Did I make a difference with something bigger than myself? None of these None of these are hampered by the time in which we lived. In fact, I think the best argument can be made that the table is set for us to recalibrate in some wonderfully unique ways alongside this season. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Help us to be finely aware Richly responsible. These are unsettling times, no doubt. Anxiety, fear uh, are, 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 are all around us. We have, it has us feeling things and doing things we never thought we would. And in some sense, going inside our own lives and paying attention to them right now is a very scary thing to do. Has been for me. I read this week an article, I was uh, compelled to this article by a podcast that I was listening to, and, or I was compelled this direction anyway, and I found an article uh, written by a woman named Valerie Taylor, who uh, she and her husband actually filmed sharks for uh, 60 years, I think it said, Um, and so they would be in the water with sharks. And she wrote these words, when confronted by a shark, look it straight in the eye. And I thought, well, I think I've heard that somewhere. When I scuba-dived a long time ago, I think that was something we were told, and then I know they say with bears, you know, don't, don't run, stay, stay still. With Mountain lions, you make yourself big, and, and, uh, and, but don't run, right? I was not prepared for the next three words that she put, in addition to staring them in the eye, when she said, and swim towards it. Is that your instinct with a... I will never be able to prove out whether, Lord willing, whether she is right or wrong in that. But the reasoning is that sharks are used to everything swimming away from them. As as sort of the apex predator of the sea, everything goes the other way when they show up. It it disorients them, I guess, when we move towards them. I would encourage you men and women, followers of Jesus, to swim toward your thoughts right now. Swim toward your anxieties and towards your fears, and, and, and towards the hopelessness that has somehow been able to become more prominent in your life, whatever it might be, swim, swim towards it. Consider whether you... What you are thinking truly is true. Consider whether you... What you think about how you're thinking right now. Nothing in our lives, no circumstance in our lives, in our world can keep us from harvesting and living with a heart of wisdom. May you find these times, times where you live that out in your life for Jesus' sake. Amen.